This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. You always have noise when volatility is extreme. Just the volume of things has increased so massively um, that, you know, the, the market is 10x the market it was uh, five years ago. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. I'm joined today by the uh, founder and CEO of Blockdaemon, Konstantin Richter. I don't know why I attempt the accents. I always embarrass myself. How did I do with the pronunciation? Last name? Pretty badly, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's but it's, I appreciate the effort. So I yeah. I appreciate it. I, this is the second time in a row I've tried a, a foreign last name and butchered it both times. But what are you going to do? Um, but thank you for joining me. Um, sure. We've got a lot of really interesting ground to cover today. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually want to point out for listeners who are just tuning in via audio, this is the first guest I've interviewed in a car. Uh, so Constantine, you're marking a, a very important <laughs> occasion here for me. There's a nice milestone to cross with you. Um, but you know, I want to zoom out for a second and get your sense of what's going on in the crypto industry, right? So we were kind of talking about before this, there are these signs, right, which are kind of viscerally reminding me of, of 2017, 2018, right? So mm -hmm. there was this uh, you know, Medium post from Andre Kronhe, right? He's the kind of lead developer of uh, Wi-Fi, and he's very active on Phantom. And you know, his basic idea is kind of a bearish idea, right, which was that the crypto culture is strangling the crypto ethos, right? All these, you know, like kind of names are coming out and saying, hey, maybe we got way ahead of our skis and some of it doesn't work just really reminds me of, of 2017, 2018. You've been in this industry even longer than I have. What are some of the kind of things outside of just price that you kind of look at to tell you where we are in the market cycle? Like, what are some other factors for just demand? And, you know, how, how do you kind of think about where we are in the current moment? Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for having me. I think, you know, one, one thought that just came to mind, I think the benefit of when you're a little older is that, uh, you know, a period of time seems to be, uh, shorter than it is for somebody who's younger. And so I feel like, you know, even the people that are in trading and looking at price, you know, for someone like me, price, obviously, when I, I not that I've been in the market for, let's say I've been in it for like, what, seven, eight years or something. But, uh, you know, from when I started to where we are today, you know, kind of there's been a line like this, right, pretty consistently, if I look over time, like, if I don't look at a window of like a year or something, then, you know, the story has been kind of what we would hope it would be all along, you know? And so I feel like our wildest uh, dreams and predictions from like 2015, 2016 came true, which is that we always were saying in the next five years, you're going to see institutions adopt um, cryptocurrency for all sorts of different things. And people were always saying that's never going to happen. And uh, how is this possible? Uh, networks are way too poor, et cetera, et cetera. And so obviously we're a lot further along. I think uh, you can't talk to any large-scale financial institution in the world and uh, not have them um, respond with either uh, a crypto offering already in the market or a very substantial POC offerings, um, specifically allowing their customers to, uh, you know, become nervous speculators themselves. And so we're just sort of feeding the the nervousness a little bit by enabling a lot more people to come in, and the native volatility of tokens will just always. Uh, have the public dialogue focused um, around the current state of price. And so I feel like you always have noise when volatility is extreme, but it's really a certain segment of, of uh, stakeholders uh, that are then the loudest. You know, So for us, it's been a very consistent um, uh, and progressive improvement when we started in 2017. If I look at the... Um, infrastructure quality of networks like Ethereum and Bitcoin and, and uh, you know, the ones that were relevant back in the day, um, you know, we've made massive strides on Ethereum when it comes to, e and even on Ethereum, that has lots of issues. 
Um, uh, and, uh, you know, now we're, you know, talking about being a few months away from the merge, even though it's been postponed a little, um, which will address fundamental and foundational concerns we had in 2017 that we didn't even know how to even address at the time. And so I started Block Demon uh, with friends in 2017 when we were trying to sell an ERC-20 token and we couldn't keep an ETH node up for longer than 30 minutes without it kind of sort of disagreeing on what the right sync height is with a bunch of other nodes. And I remember you know, there was a Skype chat group uh, with like a hundred folks who were people running exchanges and custodians sort of kind of randomly trying to agree sync height. Um, you know, and that's kind of how the status of the network when we had the first big, big boom, you know, it was very clear to everyone who was in it building actual stuff that like, yeah, this is like super unstable mm -hmm. and, and, and buggy and stuff. And so I feel um, there's been so much um, evolution in understanding these issues in also the types of companies that are at this stage engaged in solving a lot of the underlying network complexities. Companies like us um, have evolved a ton. And so um, I feel like from my side, I just uh, uh, feel that when I met Banks two years ago, um, they talked about permission closed networks and supply chain projects that really, you know, had not a lot to do with uh, blockchain use cases. And today we're talking about having, you know, um, I don't know, like lightning run payment networks for major payment providers that go to market. We have, um, you know, like substantial every financial institutions on our cap table. When, when 2017, 2018 came, you know, we had not one large financial institution wanting to invest in a node operator. Now we have Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Citibank, SoftBank, Tiger, uh, you know, the largest financial institutions in the world, uh, not just being customers, but also buying stake in our company because they believe that this is, um, you know, the future of finance. And so I think we, we definitely have a, a lot of more buy-in by hmm. um, institutional uh, legacy institutions. I think we also have a much larger developer pool compared to where we were. Uh, yeah. People who are committed to uh, participate in open source um, coding. Uh, we have a lot more companies. We have a lot more capital. If that's always necessarily a great thing, remains to be seen in this market. But, um, you know, it's it's just the volume of things has increased so massively um, that, you know, the, the market is 10x the market it was uh, five years ago and on any metric, you know. And so I feel like... Um, uh, so my conviction has grown and I feel personally very bullish about the future of crypto, also about its adoption rate, because obviously we have a little bit of an inside seat when you see really every large corporation trying to figure out what their crypto strategy is. Um, and it can range from what's our NFT play. I'm pretty sure any substantial social network and messaging platform will have an NFT play. You know, I don't like, it's just a question of time, right? Like, I mean, it's, uh, and uh, they might have their own marketplace. They might invent their own currency to allow people to purchase NFTs and relate it back into outside payment networks. Like, uh, I think the, the genie is really out of the bottle uh, for good. Now, what does that mean for people who want to uh, milk returns uh, on the short term all the time who get really annoyed about uh, volatility and all that type of stuff? You know, that's a tougher question because the macroeconomic conditions drive prices uh, more than anything, you know. And so I think that's been one of the interesting learnings from my side is how closely connected equity markets 
are to crypto prices, right? Because we've always said, hey, this crypto is this sort of hedge against these things. And it seems to be pretty closely correlated, right? And so I feel when people sort of make these statements, um, ultimately, you know, the, the physical markets and valuations are much more driven by macroeconomic factors. And those are going to be uncertain if you believe in crypto for a long time, because the whole raison d'etre of crypto is that we don't believe these markets to be working anymore. And if we believe that, then we also have to understand that that will have downward pressure on our price for a time, because that's what indicates uh, how we're faring. And so personally, I'm, I'm super bullish, super excited. I can't tell you as a founder, like, you know, when we were a scrappy startup <clears throat> up until 18 months ago, really, with 20 people, uh, you know, if you would have told me, that Goldman Sachs is a major investor in our company and we're talking to them about five different large scale projects and they're, you know, inviting me to talk to their investors about crypto and, you know, like kind of, I would have said you're nuts, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and so I, I think it's been really extraordinary how far we actually came. One, one thing that I'd love to, to get your thoughts on is kind of the connection in between everything that we're doing here in crypto and the broader like socio-political landscape, right? So, you know, I heard you talk about this on other podcasts that in general, it's a bit of a weird time uh, for politics in the United States. You know, we feel pretty divided. I think, I don't think it's wildly out of the question to say people are questioning trust in our institutions and trust or trustlessness specifically is such a, a theme in crypto, right? We're trying to build this infrastructure mm -hmm. that is resilient to and doesn't necessarily rely on the institutions that we view as, as failing us. Talk to us a little bit about, because so much of what Blockdaemon does is infrastructure, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you think about systems design, right? For everything mm -hmm. that we're doing in crypto, how should that translate into society? Do you have a framework for thinking about that? I think first and foremost, you know, what's so sexy about cryptocurrencies is, um, or, you know, blockchain and cryptography is, the ability how they can impact how human beings organize themselves around projects that contain value and so uh, currently uh, most of the projects human beings work on are um, voted on and then executed on by a government that once it's been voted on is sort of empowered to kind of do what they want and so right. it's it's kind of interesting if if you think about that ultimately the governments are actually uh, you know, government is the entity that really gets to decide ultimately what we as a community come together and and want to do. And I think what becomes clearer and clearer over time, and I'm not a political scientist, nor do I, I'm particularly smart in that way, um, is that there's um, seems to be really large scale communal issues that probably the majority of people agree on, but that our government can't fix any longer. Um, and so I always uh, think of it as like one is climate change just because the complexity is so vast. I think we all most people agree that that climate change is real and that there's a problem coming, even though people like to make it a lot more complicated. I think the majority of people <clears throat> are concerned about it and care about it. And it's just that, you know, we can't really find answers that work for everyone um, in the way we currently and not because I think the answers themselves are difficult. It's how we derive the question. Uh, that creates the problem is because we have so many different interested parties, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I, all I'm saying is that oh, gun control, the majority, I think, of people are definitely fine with some reasonable form of gun control. And so, um, and so I think it's interesting to see where our representative democracy fails us and how interesting decentralized systems can be in order to open a path to maybe separate the question of value or money from uh, government and state control, right? And mm -hmm. so now that's a very scary 
proposition, but that's been something at the core of crypto from the beginning. Uh, and it's unfortunate and we try to hide it. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we always uh, that was always the goal is to uh, build um, a financial system that's removed from any any individual entity. The largest individual entity uh, in, in any Western country is the government. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's an, a natural disconnect and. And 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 you'll see that that is the that's why this friction around regulation, taxation, all the sort of uh, those things are so vital is because um, that's really where the rubber hits the road in how we are doing in that process, right? And so my viewpoint for Block Demon, which I'm has matured a little over time, is <clears throat> that I hope that we can find ways to bridge existing institutions um, that represent individuals safely into these new onto these new rails right so what i'm moved on from is this sort of very aggressive maximalist view of let's blow up the system and you know like we don't want any government and 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 just because i feel like the there's uh, you know there's a lot of people who can do with help and the world is really complicated and there's older people and there's young people and and like there's this sort of uh, sometimes this ethos in crypto of this like perfectly evolved individual that can solve all their own complexities and questions and thus they shouldn't be beholden to any rules or standards and stuff is is sometimes very egotistical because you know there are a lot of you know people who who need help and 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 so i don't want that perfect libertarian world of like you know there's just no nothing here um, I think um, I do want to make sure that uh, we can work with what exists. There's uh, a lot of good in government. There's a lot of good intentions. There's a lot of legislation that um, people have um, battled over and evolved over um, that has generations of traditions around it where uh, people have um, um, evolved complex frameworks of thought that we should take and benefit from. You know, like I, I want to make sure we're not just sort of developing the arrogance to say let's rewrite everything ourselves because we're young i'm not so young but you are uh, and smart and and we don't need to look to the past for anything and so i hope we don't make that mistake and and that we um but you know ultimately um the systemic improvements we can make to a non-corruptible system um is is a lot higher than what we can change in a system that is corruptible, which seems to be currently our political system, where with lobbying and money and things like that, um, the system doesn't seem to reflect um, the best outcome for the most participants. And so if you look at it as a sort of decentralized architecture problem, what we're having in our political system is a pretty bad system where it seems that there's a lot of centralization around particular individuals and entities um, that can control um, the overall outcome for a lot of individuals. And kind of what crypto kind of wants to do is to kind of sort of even that slate a little bit. And so to have everyone be the same ultimately and have a software and cryptography ensure that there um, isn't any way to weight this in a way that isn't um, reflective of an individual identity. And so um, that's what I kind of like um, about crypto and what gets me excited. So you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, part of the risk of the current system being centralization, right, around small groups of people that have kind of mm-hmm. uh, maybe not as much transparency into how they make decisions or uh, or whatever. Uh, you know, there are two primary systems of consensus in crypto, right? There's proof of work, uh, you know, and that's mm-hmm. obviously, that's obviously the 
the underlying uh, underlies Bitcoin blockchain. And then there's proof of stake, right? Which basically, I mean, Ethereum is currently proof of work, but it's transitioning to proof of stake and all the alternative L1s essentially work on a proof of stake. The criticism that sometimes is levied um, at, at some of these uh, smart contract platforms is that, hey, that, you know, using a proof of stake consensus mechanism, that's no different than what exists in the current world, right? That's just the amount of stuff that you have determines the amount of say that you get in, in the network and the decisions that get made. How is that any different from the system that we currently have? What would, what would you say to that criticism? Yeah, I mean, first off, uh, obviously, that even if it's true or not, at least it's a fresh start, right? So there's that. Um, but, yeah. um, but I think overall, what I find so interesting is that the uh, there's obviously a lot of systemic things you can build in in order to manage supply. So the example you had around these 12 individuals making random decisions that are totally intransparent, that's really the change, right? It's like right. the governance and the visibility in how decisions get made that impact the overall uh, inflationary structure of these networks is a lot more clear. And, and so people can adjust their behavior also accordingly, which currently isn't really possible. And so I think the, the ultimately, I think that's a really big, big differentiating factor. I think there's a huge question. There's two complex things that are also a little like politics that make this complicated, which is one is there's the what we call decentralization, as you've mentioned, which is in a proof of stake network initially has something to do with when we have the creation period of this network, we give people chunks of capital. Mm -hmm. And these people ultimately in the beginning control the network. And then how over time do we wind these chunks down and give more and more people um, until an ideal end goal, um, the ability to participate in decisions and eliminate singular points of failure. Mm -hmm. And I think there's sometimes a misperception of what a good distributed network looks like, because there's also a technical part to this, right? Which is one is the consensus, but then there's also the network performance. And the mm -hmm. problem is that there's sort of a, um, uh, you know, a little bit of a dilemma between um, the degree of what we define decentralization with, if we see it as individual entities, and the ability of the network to perform at scale. And so it's a kind of fun little mortal dance, right? Like, so uh, the more the network achieves this ultimate state, the less functional it will get. So you need to have a solution to this, right? And so uh, and that's a lot how we think at Blockdemon, for example, on the, 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 the node distribution part is, I think that's just, um, you know, ultimately open source communities um, should be reflective of a community. There should be institutional participation in an open source community the institutions just shouldn't control uh, the complete, you know, the total network. And so the block demon mantra is always, you know, we're happy running up to 20% of infrastructure in a project um, as long as we, um, it, as, as long as all the nodes we run have 24-7 uh, failovers, we actively monitor and look at all the nodes in the network to ensure that any node we launch aids the resilience and latency in the network. So we fill gaps in networks quickly when we see, hey, there's a lot of folks running nodes on a particular cloud provider in a particular region because it's economically um, better to do so. Then as Blockdemon, we can very quickly make sure because we have a good quantity of nodes and networks that we sort of balance that out, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, and so the, the point I'm making is that decentralization is not just a factor of the largest number n of individuals, for example, running a node, it is it serves a lot more purposes. The network needs to also function. You need to have failovers and structures, and so uh, you can have a, in theory, you can have a very well distrib 
you know, functioning very um, decentralized networks with 10 participants, for example. Right. right. You just need to make sure that um, uh, now there's security threat there and all that type of stuff. But in theory, uh, that's probably a lot safer than a lot of the systems you currently uh, we currently see. And even a lot of the large change changes uh, chains in, in the uh, that we have, frankly, I mean, I'd say out of the top 20 chains, uh, probably less than 10 have um, have more than 10 part like have more than 10 parties um uh, that uh or less than 10 parties that can halt a network mm -hmm. um the reality is that most of these networks by definition initially aren't very decentralized and uh, and uh you know and that continues to be a problem and we're working very hard in helping these networks to define what is a true measure of decentralization on uh, voting and technical capabilities as well i've got two kind of open questions for you that um i always think about in this debate uh you know, one, and for listeners who are who might not be aware, there are multiple different uh, kind of stakeholders, right, in the realm of uh, kind of, is like if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, there are kind of three, right? There are the software developers, there are the validators, and then there are the miners, right? So people, uh, but you know, my my question to you is one: when it comes to proof of work versus proof of stake, what's the difference between having, let's say, five hundred thousand dollars and then you know worth of ETH or something, and then getting to vote proportionally to that versus on the Bitcoin blockchain, you'd have to buy, you know invest in $500,000 worth of mining rigs, and then you would essentially get that say. You know what I mean? Like, what's the difference really there? Because you have to invest in the mining rigs to get there. So that's my first question. Then my second question is, you said this, when I first asked you that question, you started with something that was very interesting, which was, well, at least it would be a fresh start. And my, you know, people in crypto sometimes do this thing, which I think is an oxymoron. It's like, it's this really free market. And because of that, we're going to get equal opportunity for everyone. Ta human talent in a, in a totally free market system, if you play that out, you end up with something that's very centralized because talent does not accrue naturally. Like the people that are the most capable will accrue the most resources, they'll compound their advantage, and you end up in these very unfair systems. So do you ever think about that? Like on the one hand, it's like we want that. We want that free market, right, where everyone has an equal chance but that doesn't mean it's going to be an equal outcome. Yeah, and 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 that's why I think it's going to be. But you know, and that's why there's so many interesting uh, interconnected worlds here too, with protocols and bridges, and you need control mechanisms for any free market, right? Like right. there needs to be. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, I think political systems are fascinating. I mean, like uh, you can read the U.S. Uh, the the Constitution, and it's fascinating. You know, there's obviously an individual that can do X, and then there's Congress and the Senate, and then there's a whole uh, legal system. And ultimately, that's what I meant. Like we shouldn't dismiss all these amazing learnings that humanity had when it comes to controlling and governing the human instinct of, uh, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, thriving or greed or whatever it is. Like, there's a lot of things we can learn uh, and and we shouldn't be ignorant and, and exclude some of that thought from system design, right? And so I agree that I think yeah. the, the full-on liberal market obviously uh, doesn't seem to work because it leads to um, uh, strong parties becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, very much like we've seen it now in the traditional financial system. You know, like we've mm. seen that accelerate over the last two decades where the riches become richer and richer. And we see that in, in, in decentralized networks as well. I don't think we have a particular intelligent answer um, to, to, to that uh, particular problem yet. Um, I think the, 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 that's why what I meant, like, you know, at least you can say, well, at least it's a fresh start, meaning um, you're, you're starting, uh, which is a little bit like, 
ultimately the changing of presidents in America, uh, you can kind of wipe the slate clean, uh, get some new people on, and then in four or five years, you do a new fresh start. Um, and, and you could do that on decentralized systems as well. And you yeah. could do that in a really interesting way. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of, you know, interesting thought around that subject in how, and, and some of it we do systemically by changing inflation payouts, um, and, and things like that with networks, but others are also potential, uh, changes in governments, governance over time and how we yeah. go about that. But it's a complicated story for sure. How do you think about, and then maybe we can kind of transition here into, uh, you know, what you guys are doing at Blockchain, and I've got some questions for you. Um, mm. you know, one one thing that I think is important about ETHs, not their network design, the Ethereum network design, but the community values, is mm -hmm. they view it as being very important that anyone can afford to be a validator in general, right, of the network. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this kind of trade-off, right, between performance uh, and you know, or like efficiency and performance and decentralization. And some other blockchains, some of the newer ones like the Solana and Avalanche, it's, it's seemingly less important, right? They say, okay, you, well, anyone can be a validator, but, you know, the cost of buying the validator equipment's like, I don't even know what it is. Uh, it's, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, whereas, you know, for the Ethereum community, they've clearly been like, it's really important. We view a big component of decentralization being that anyone can afford to be a validator. How do you think about the affordability and ease of being a validator when it pertains to decentralization? Like, is that a super com important component? Does that factor into like the network design? Is it more of a community kind of value that needs to get held in different blockchains? Like, how do you think about that whole idea? Yeah, um, it's a really good question, and it's a complex one, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the 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 Ethereum one, you know, I think it's sometimes. I don't think it's the best way to make everyone become a, a validator because uh, often we forget also what the healthy requirements are for the validator. And so it's a little bit like, oh, yeah, sure, become a validator. We give you all the tools. But, you know, if you get something wrong, there might be very serious consequence to it. And, and the reality is that um, in these complex, the, the more performant the decentralized network becomes and the more decentralization you have, the harder it is to run a good validator because yeah. it means you need to be 24-7 in discords. A new client could drop. Um, and so it's this like, the problem is that the rewards that are paid out for node operation um, are too small for individuals to do it efficiently. And, and so I find that it's sometimes, and, and so, you know, sometimes it's not very honest. Because the reality is, um, you know, you can uh, become a validator by yourself and make a little money. But when the shit hits the fan, you're going to find it very, very hard to protect your assets. So, you know, like, I, I think sometimes it's easy as a network to have a theoretical sort of model of like, yeah, this is how this uh, could be. And you go run that node in the basement and invest in equipment. And uh, but, you know, obviously never take off a day. Um, be online all the time, make sure you have a failover system uh, in another territory where you can call someone. Um, uh, otherwise, you're missing, you might, you know, you might get slashed, for example. And so I think it's, it's important to tell people what the quality of a good node looks like over time. And I don't think we do a good job in the industry of that, because we've seen that and we've learned it the hard way. Right, which is people think like, oh, I just use this code, deploy a node, put it in the cloud or somewhere, and let it run. I mean, it's easy. And the reality is, no, these are nonlinear, open source, community-driven projects. You'll find software updates on. We've had, you know, January first, hey, two two a.m. 
you guys need to update the client or you get kicked off the network. And it's all that type of stuff that leans itself to a more professional approach, um, specifically when you have to protect substantial assets. And so yeah. I would be a lot more happy if uh, the community would also, for example, offer an insurance product for every individual who runs a node. So I find that the, the current way to addressing the project problem is, is, is not honest because you're exposing a lot of people to a lot of risk. And uh, I think the, the, what we try to do at Blockdemon, for example, is um, we offer to any customer 100% insurance. So if yeah. anything happens, then anyway, it's our job anyway to run the node. But if anything were to happen, you're not exposed to that particular risk. Right. And so I think the, the incentive mechanisms are currently not ideal for decentralization to operate that way. I think it's a little dishonest. And I feel for people who um, run also small validators on larger networks now um, because the economics are getting tougher because there's larger validator shops like us who have a lot more volume. So obviously we have economies of scale. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you don't have um, community driven uh, support, also around uh, insurance products and whatever, cheaper cloud credits or something, uh, these individuals are not making smart commercial decisions operating a validator, you know? And so um, as Blockdemon, we have no interest in monopolizing running all the nodes. Um, we actually um, gift uh, cloud credits to the foundations all the time. Um, and I think foundations should do that to certain sub-segments of validators and developers, for example alongside potential insurance products, if they really want to have a large um, uh, amount of validators operating. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it, and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto-native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking. Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. Yeah. So if I could just summarize your argument there, you know, I, I feel like this was um, not to pick on any specific prop, but I remember there's was, was like a, I'll just say like there was the Brave, you know, thing, mm -hmm. which is basically like, hey, use our uh, product and you'll essentially get, you know, when Google does this, they're not paying you for using it um, mm -hmm. and you'll get this kind of money back. Brave, by the way, the, the browser is great. I actually, my, my, one of my best friends, I saw him using the Brave browser. I was like, dude, do you know that's a, he's like, this is a crypto thing? He had no idea. He was just using it. It's a great product. But that argument of like, am I going to use something so that I get an extra like 15 bucks a year? No, it's just not going to move the needle, you know? And so is the argument kind of with nodes like, it's more trouble than it's worth. It doesn't make economic sense. So that the natural model of of node management, right? And this is where we can maybe get into block daemon here, because uh, you guys have an amazing business. It's almost like spinning up a node as a service, it's infrastructure as a service, right? Mm -hmm. The way I understand it. Mm -hmm. um, 
where you guys are professionals at this, right? You can go to the site and check it out, and you guys are a sponsor on the show, uh, right? So you've heard heard, heard in, in uh, the plugs, but like, it is. It's such a great service. You have slashing insurance. You can call someone. You have your own dedicated team of engineers that kind of manage this. Um, walk walk me through what the business looks like. Like you have you've got you work with financial institutions. You mentioned Goldman. You work mm-hmm. with with hedge funds, right? You work with mm-hmm. DeFi protocols. Mm-hmm. Why, if I'm a hedge fund, right? Why am I going to Blockdame and being like, I'd like to spin up a node? Like, what are the things that they can do with that? Why would they need to do that? Yeah. So let me explain really what a node does, right? Like, mm-hmm. like on a very simple layer, just so folks understand and if, if they don't. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, kind of a node is, think of it as a node, as the API, is, is really the API into a blockchain network, which means it's the way you can submit information into a blockchain. Mm. And so, uh, and what information do we submit into a blockchain? We submit transactions, right? I'm sending A to B and, uh, and then we keep a record of everything. And so, in, and the access point in any blockchain, the only direct access point to do that is via node. Now, uh, there's different types of nodes. So, as if, you know, there's nodes that, uh, for example, earn interest, which are mining or staking nodes, right? And so, um, and those nodes sometimes earn, uh, have a different purpose. Those aren't the nodes that physically submit a transaction in a network. Those are often nodes that validate the transaction, right? And so, um, and so there's different purposes here and different commercial models around it. Um, the the core use case we started with was actually transaction nodes, which we call full, which are full nodes. It's actually not a validator, but it's a node that contains a, a copy of the ledger and the software where people can pummel transact send transaction that gets submitted for validation and added into a block. And um, and so if if any financial institution, for example, that allows any of their customers to uh, deposit or buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, if you have said, well, oh, now I have two ETH, it means that somewhere that purchase had to be registered and that registration has been submitted by an order into a, a full node. And for a financial institution, um, these transactions get queued and bundled um, and uh, based on wh- which node they hit at the time. And so the only safe way for you to ensure that you have a clean path into the network is by running your own node that only you can submit a transaction to. Mm. And so so that's the first uh, big use case is that if you're a financial institution that has a lot of volume, so if you're um, a B2C company, you need to have access to proprietary infrastructure so it doesn't get pummeled by multiple different parties. Mm. And so that's our core customer constituent. And the reason why they, and then the question is, why don't they do that themselves? And why do they come to us? And the answer is very simple. Is One is uh, uh, nowadays, if you want to have a B2C offering in crypto, you probably end up having of, having to offer 50 tokens. And all these nodes uh, have a hardware requirement, but then there's a software client requirement also. And that client requirement is driven by the open source community. And these communities are nonlinear. They live in Discord channels. Um, history matters. It's hard to anticipate what they launch in a week or not. And so if you want to offer any um, traditional financial uptime, like a 99.99% uptime guarantee, for example, uh, you need to have quite a lot of resources in play in order to ensure that you don't miss anything on Ethereum. Like, that's not easy. Ethereum is an insane network, which means, you know, we, for example, have a handful of really core ETH devs on payroll 
um, that work with us and making sure that we are ahead of understanding, you know, what happens on the Ethereum chain. And so the the cost of a financial institution to offer this to around for 50 protocols is very high if you want to do it yourself, because each protocol might require two or three dedicated engineers that are experts in that area if you want to have 24-7 respective uptime. And so the um, current formula really is, think of it that way, uh, you know, you can pay us $1,000 a month or you can pay an engineer $10,000 per month, right? And so it's 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 a little bit a no-brainer at this stage because the security requirements on our side is so high that we can ensure you 100% so there's zero risk to you using our infrastructure. And so it, it really commercially makes no sense anymore really to do this yourself over time. And I think we're going to see an increase of that. When I started the business and I told people, I want to manage your nodes, I'd say maybe only 5 to 10% of institutions would take my call. The rest would be like, we do this ourselves. Are you nuts? Um, I'd say today, 80% of institutions outsource core components of their node infrastructure. And when you say institutions, are you talking about like not only like big financials, like the Goldman Sachs of the world, but even like some of the, like maybe like a, I'm pulling it, but like a crypto market maker, like a GSR, B2C2, those type of guys. Yeah. And, and well, what I would say is, is um, I'd say, uh, so crypto native companies, I'd say 80% outsource mm. components of the infrastructure. That's great. Uh, legacy financial institutions outsource 100%. 100, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like they're not going to, they're like, hey, dude, we're, we're, we just want to offer this. Um, we want an API or, yeah. or like somebody who does this for us because, you know, uh, they, they want to figure out other interesting components on top of that than just the core infrastructure. And so sure. my, my view is, or what we've seen is that most of these yeah, new entities at this stage outsource this from the get-go. And with the legacy institutions, the exchanges and stuff, I think initially they did the, you know, but don't forget when 2017, Coinbase had what? Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Like, you know, and that was it. Like, yeah. it, like the, their infrastructure needs looked very different um, and compared to the services they offer today and the size of their infrastructure team, which is probably at this stage, you know, hundreds and hundreds of engineers, um, and they're still working with parties and outsource components of it, right? And so imagine uh, you're, I don't know, a PayPal or someone like that coming into the market. Do you want to hire a thousand crypto engineers to offer this or, you know, mm -hmm. pay a little bit of money and not have to worry about it? When you look towards the future of the industry, it, it seems like, you know, we actually see this in microcosm of our business too. But, um, you know, one thing that I think a lot of folks missed right, was this explosion, right, of multiple different chains, right? This mm -hmm. people, multi-chain world that we're heading towards, whatever. It provides some operational complexity. That seems like opportunity uh, for block diamond, right? Uh, that's mm -hmm. kind of the driver. Because if we were all, if Bitcoin was the only blockchain, right, it's pretty easy to spin up a validator, maybe not so much of a business, but because there's all these different chains, the lift is very high, high complexity seems good for block diamond's business. When you look towards kind of the future, you've got... The Bitcoin crowd that says maybe, hey, Bitcoin's the only thing that matters. Even now, the ETH crowd is like, uh, you know, all these other alternative L1s, they're, they're not going to make it, right? They're taking shortcuts and whatever. Um, what is your view for the next five, let's say five to 10 years, right? When we wake up, it's 2032, if, if the earth is still kicking, uh, you know, what is, what is the, the core infrastructure kind of look like? We've always thought of a multi-protocol uh, future. Um, I think we'll have 
dozens and hundreds of protocols um, at least, right? And so, uh, and we see already that between the consensus and the performance, there's enough trade-offs to have enough different versions of chains solve different problems, right? And so different uh, uh, problems in the world will require different forms of consensus. And so I think there's room for different chains um, on it. And, um, and so ultimately, that type of orchestration tooling is the core layer of Block Demon's project uh, 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 product. And so I feel like we're going to see a continuation of that. I think um, I always feel like, you know, we probably haven't seen most of the chains that will really be these core layers yet. I think a lot of them are actually getting developed and, and they'd be based on Tendermint derivatives and things like that. You know, there's really great, great protocols that have developed amazing infrastructure for people to build new chains and do new things that I think most of these uh, new, um, um, you know, protocols and economies that we'll see develop uh, will occur over time. Um, and so we try to look at some of those um, structures. Like when I say Tendermint, I'm referring to the Cosmos ecosystem, yeah. for example, where I feel like the Cosmos ecosystem, I think, is, uh, you know, my view currently fairly undervalued um, because it actually has a lot of really exciting software and tools that a lot of people can build really exciting blockchains on top. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we try to look at a future that way. So we prioritize five to seven ecosystems like that internally, where we're like, hey, we want to be really good at this. We think those are uh, going to be the future hubs of blockchain evolution. And uh, we assign resources to those and we try to invest in infrastructure for those particular chains. So we, we're, we're in there early. So I think it's going to look a little different in the future. Uh, than it does now. Um, but I agree that the complexity of how to manage, ultimately on an infrastructure layer, it's like, how do you how do you become like a Datadog slash Stripe um, in decentralized networks? And really what that means is how can you monitor, how can you monitor and manage um, um, data, little data instances across 50 different data centers controlled by different entities efficiently so they can sync every five minutes you know like kind of so when you think of the architecture you're building you're kind of sort of it, technically we're building for that and i think um ultimately that product is going to be very valuable no matter how many chains they are uh we believe that there's room for a lot of nodes i always said in when i started the business i said that i believe one day there's going to be a hundred thousand nodes run by institutions um and people were telling me by 2020 was my prediction and I remember raising money in 2017 and people were like, stupid, like nobody, why would there ever be that? And it seems so silly now, you know, like uh, not that I was right, like the one mistake I made. I, I said, these are all going to be probably permission networks because no institution would ever run on a public chain mm. because they're so unreliable, which they were back then. Mm. And a lot has happened, you know, and so now you have a lot of institutions running on ETH and offering yield and, you know, look at Robinhood and PayPal, people can, you know, hold ETH and buy it and things like that. And so I feel like my assumption is that this will go up exponentially and that we'll have millions and millions of uh, uh, institutional grade nodes run in the world. And hopefully Block Demon plays a big role in orchestrating them to ensure that they serve the interest of the network and its con uh, constituents efficiently, you know, so. Yeah, I have no doubt that it will. Um, Constantine, you've already been generous with your time. I know we got a wrap here. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, Block Daemon, the work that you guys do, what's the best way to do it? I mean, blockdaemon.com is a great resource. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter, like 
you know everything else on crypto that's uh uh, you know, let's see what happens uh, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, we're we're out there, and uh, we'd love to hear from folks. Uh, we always say we have free uh, node tiers as well, and people want to dabble in infrastructure um, and a fantastic um, API product. Also, if you want to pull data from chains, it's currently for free. So, if you're a developer um, and eager to build applications, you know, come try us out. And uh, yeah, always happy to talk. Uh, shoot us emails. Um, you can send them to uh, hello at blockdemon.com. I get them too. So. Um, you know, we're all um, uh, really aggressively trying to respond to the community whenever we can. Yeah, I will say, um, I mean, you know, full disclosure, you guys are a sponsor on the show and I think we've been working sure. with you guys for a little while. It took me a little while to fully understand the business of what you guys are doing. But when the light bulb clicked off, I was just like, oh, my God, this is such a good business. My God, uh, that's why I've got, uh, you know, some specific questions for you and just how you think about the world. Sure. And revenue drivers, but um but anyway, Constantine, it's been a, a blast to have you on the show. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, um, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you.